From KYW News Radio, the Delaware Valley's news authority, this is Flashpoint. What's igniting debate online and in your community? I'm KYW Community Affairs reporter Cherry Gregg, and we'll run through the big issues of the week that are getting folks hot under the collar. Coming up on this podcast Philadelphia's eviction crisis. Why? Are we getting kicked out our building? With one in 14 tenants getting eviction notices each year, a look below the surface reveals it's not just about broke tenants and slumlords. We're not finding the same rents. We're not finding the same units. What landlords wind up doing is deferred maintenance. Just do enough just to get by. A case study from West Philly as folks from all sides weigh in. She made headlines for memorializing overdose victims. Important to remember the person for more than just their worst moment. A Catholic nurse's mission and the way she preserved the dignity of those both living and dying with addiction. Hey guys, listen up. When you're done with the show, would you do me a favor? Please provide a review and rate this podcast. And feel free to provide feedback often. We need reviews to push us to the top. Now back to the show. Thanks all. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. The focus is the eviction crisis. In 2016, one in 14 renters were handed eviction notices in the city of Philadelphia, a place where there are four times as many evictions as there are foreclosures. Low-income people in general experience a lot of residential instability regardless of gentrification. That's Jacqueline Wang, who co-authored a study that showed gentrification is having little effect on homeowners, but they didn't look at renters, which makes up roughly half of city residents. But the issue is much bigger than bad tenants and landlords. Recently, residents at Dorset and Admiral Courts in West Philadelphia were given three weeks to get out until a judge blocked their eviction. The properties had serious code violations. And the worst part is residents have few affordable options, making moving tough. With me in the studio to discuss this flashpoint is Algernon Allen. He is a licensed realtor. He's a developer and a landlord with properties in West and South Philadelphia. We also have Barrett Marshall, housing law staff attorney at Community Legal Services of Philadelphia. And finally, we have Fatumata Gamby, a tenant at the Admiral Court in West Philadelphia who was given an eviction notice last month with just three weeks to vacate. Exactly. Welcome to the KYW Studios and to Flashpoint. Thanks for having Thanks us. Thanks for having Thank us. Thank you. Fatumata, I have to go right to you because this was an emergency situation for you. Tell me the situation. We pay every first of the month. And coming from school with my three kids, and I see the note at the every apartment door, dated for the 9th of April, say we need to leave the building on the 30th. They say the city ordered us to move the building. And we call them the next day. I said, well, how are we going to have a new place in 21 days? So you immediately knew this was wrong. I know immediately this was wrong. Not only me, everybody in the building knew it was wrong. But we needed an answer. And and we'll get back to the the details because I know there was a protest. There was a lot of stuff in here. But Barrett, this is... Just one example. Could you explain it a little bit more and then explain how this is just one example of a major eviction crisis in Philadelphia? Sure. So some of the struggle with Dorset Court and Admiral Court, they're sort of a pair of buildings that we're seeing a problem with, was that the tenants were told that the city had ordered them shut down by licensing and inspection. And that just wasn't true. Um, That wasn't what was happening. Um, And scare tactics like this are used to sort of remove people from their homes, from the properties very quickly when we sometimes see a sale of a property or we want to empty the building out quickly. Um, We've been able to intervene um, and and tenants can stay put for the time being, but we see this kind of miscommunication really often. And unfortunately, because folks are not necessarily as educated as Ms. Gamby is um, about their rights, 
they don't know, and they'll vacate without even seeking any assistance. And so we do see this problem often between tenants and landlords. And we have, uh, there was a study done that said one in 14 Philadelphians, that's a large number of people being evicted. It is a large number of people being evicted, um, particularly in a city where we know about 47% of our residents are in rental properties. To see so many evictions means that many, many, many of us are actually at risk of, of having our homes taken away. Um, and we don't have the education or the understanding to even defend ourselves from some of these things. So. Now, yeah, and, and Al, you are specifically uh, a landlord. You work with a lot of people buying property, looking at properties mm-hmm. to buy and to, and to rent, especially in lower-income neighborhoods. What, what are some of the issues that you see from landlords when they're dealing with tenants and when you hear something like this going on? Uh, by the time, at least in my personal experience, it gets to an eviction, I've tried to work it out with folks. I've given them time to get their uh, situations together because in lower income communities, you know, uh, a lot more uh, instability with tenants' lives happen. So whether one of the one of the partners leaves the household or a job gets lost, um, you know, I generally, uh, in my experience, try to work with the tenants because it's easier than finding somebody new, redoing the whole property. And it's just like the decent thing to do. But some people take that a little bit too far. Um, and then you have to start sending them a pay or quit notice. Um, that's like a notice to say, hey, I need to get paid now because I got bills too. And then, you know, you start the whole eviction process, which has gotten a lot faster than it used to be in Philadelphia. Um, but I still think it should it should be much more than 21 days um, in most cases. And just to be clear, Al is not connected right. to Avril. Not at all. <laughs> Thank at you. all, yes. Yes, because uh, I don't know what their... Um, reason and I understand that possible sale. We don't really know. The landlord specifically hasn't said, right. but a lot of times with all these developers looking at land and property, you see, um, you know, the 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 landlord, the property owner wants to sell. A developer has his eye, wants to get everybody out as quickly as possible. Um, that happens. I don't think that all developers operate in the same fashion. A lot of times when developers are purchasing a a property, they're looking at the the leases, and in order to get their financing, it's based on the amount of income being generated at the property at present. There have been issues where people want to renovate, and there are people who may lack the compassion and ethical standard that, you know, we as people generally have. Gambia, your rent was paid. Everything was done. You were just told to get out. Everything was paid. But they do have a LNI violation. A lot of apartments, they don't have a heat on. They have a water crawling on the ceiling. They have a hole on the ceiling, mold. So they do have a LNI inspection and violation, which they're supposed to go to the court. So a lot of times, so there were LNI violations. And also, they, they don't have a license. There's a hear- They didn't have a proper license. There nope. was a hearing date coming. And instead of wanting to fix it, they just said, you know what? We're going to get rid of everybody. Yep. Since 2015, they don't have a license for rent. So this is not just a landlord, you know, eviction issue. This is also dealing with habitation issues as well, Barrett. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, what we deal with every day so frequently involves habitability. It's so, you know, 
I, I love to hear landlords and developers talk about their ethical obligations, as we were hearing earlier, because so many folks aren't repairing homes, aren't keeping heat on, aren't making sure that families are safe in these structures that they're renting from them. Um, and that so often is the back and forth. Um, we don't see a lot of places that are in beautiful, pristine condition where someone isn't paying rent and is being evicted. We see, unfortunately, places that are in horrible condition where there is not heat on, as Ms. Gamby said, where folks are just living in really bad conditions. Retaliation happens. The people think they were retaliated against because they did call L&I and complain about these conditions? Well, when the lady, uh, the secretary came for the second notice to give it to us, she said, why are we getting kicked out our building? She said, because we called too much L&I and guessed them. I said, but we have to because we need repair. If you fix it, we're not going to call them. A lot of people, you know, when they hear stuff like this, they say, oh, that sounds like a horrible place. You got kids. Why not just pack your kids up and move? As much as I would love to move, I'm a single mom. I work by paycheck. And I don't have that money safe to just go somewhere else. To find a place in that area is way too much expensive for what I personally get for income. So the issue is that the housing stock, there's not a lot of places to live. And and, and so, but landlords know that. Right. So yeah. somebody buys a building, they buy it, they rent it out. They may or may not increase rents. Like usually in these type of cases, they're not increasing rents to like market rate. Um, but they're also not putting any money into the building and they're just like eking by. So sometimes the landlord may not have the financial wherewithal or the uh, management expertise to deploy the resources to get the problems fixed. What landlords wind up doing is deferred maintenance. Like they'll just do enough just to get by, just to keep the money still coming in, but not really fixing the problem. But in putting re- some tape on the Putting on some the, tape on it. Yeah, pretty yeah. much. But they may not be raising rents at the same time. They're just like eking by. And I don't know what their end game of it is. And people know that there's not a lot of housing stock. And so they can get away with it a lot of times. Yeah. I don't know if they're trying to get away with it from the market standpoint. They're just trying to get away with it from the maybe financial standpoint. Or, you know, there are a small percentage of people who are just like some lords, like and really truly earn the title. Probably guess it's not the majority of landlords. Most people don't really feel like drama with L&I or they don't want to have lawsuits and all of that. So they're trying to do the best they can. But there are a small small group of people that are predatory and will try to take advantage of people who don't know their rights. Yeah. And so and so part of what you all do, Barrett, is the city has started to deal with this, quote, crisis and they launched an eviction prevention project. And I know that the Community Legal Services of Philadelphia is spearheading the project with other groups. Tell me what you guys do to help, you know, manage this issue between landlords and tenants. Right. So the Philadelphia Eviction Prevention Project, which um, is my full time job, that's what I do all the time. Uh, Essentially, we are piloting a number of programs to see if we can increase representation to tenants, um, educate the community more and just generally get people actually engaged in the eviction process so they do know their rights so that we can help people understand what their recourse is if they are living in uninhabitable conditions or they're having other problems with their landlords. Um, So some of the things we're doing currently, we've expanded the hours of the Landlord-Tenant Help Center at Municipal Court. So we're there four days a week. We're doing intakes with folks, providing advice. Um, We're providing a lawyer of the day twice a week. Uh, This is a person who's actually on the courtroom floor, able to take eviction cases right on the spot. Because normally tenants don't have representation. Uh, I have seen a couple different numbers, but anywhere from 1% to 8% of tenants come into eviction court with an attorney. 
as opposed to something like 81% of landlords yeah. who are represented. So we're really seeing an incredible imbalance, even in representation. And all things should be fair. And in fairness, all people should be represented, right? All parties should have a say. Um, and so our hope is that we can bump that percentage a little bit and just just give people a say in, in some of these matters. Yeah, because not everybody like you, Gamby, have the wherewithal to know that you have rights. So what's the current status of where you live and are you looking for another place and how hard is it or, or easy is it finding another place? It's hard to find a place. Even if you find a place near our neighborhood, it's double what you pay. And we actually, we don't know what we stand so far because we asked them to give us more time to looking for a new place. So right now we're just looking. There's no news about what they're going to do. Either they're going to sell the building or who's going to be the new owner or what is going to happen. And now, last time we spoke with them, they said they can put us to one of their other buildings. One of my room, I mean, tenants, when neighbor went to look the building, they show her the basement. With no wall, no toilet, and everything, she was discussing, and she's on a kidney failure program. Yeah, but I mean, this this sounds like that building is going to take significant <laughs> types oh, yeah. of, it's and so overall. at some point, the the landlord may just decide that that's not what he's not willing to invest anymore. Right, and he may not be able to afford the amount of investment it takes. Some of the issue is that rents are tied to the values of the properties, right? And in the past, let's say seven years or so. Prices have increased. So when people are acquiring properties, like, you know, it all has to do with like the interest rates and the demand, but basically prices have been going up. So anybody that buys a property now, they have to pay for it with their mortgage because they bought it at a higher price. That mortgage is higher than for people that have bought it 10 years ago. Those people have a lower mortgage and they can rent it out for a cheaper price. But nowadays, if you're buying it and you have a higher entry point, you have to pass along some of that cost to the people which people means people like Gamby and other families have to pay a much higher price for rent in order in order to do it because um like let's say somebody bought this particular property it's going to be sold at a price that is going to be inflated because of just the way the general market is and so she may never find that price at that place again in especially that, once in they invest in it that's just the and this is what I want to drill down to ultimately is that it's not about families like Ms. Gamby's paying more money the money isn't there it's about people being displaced and being relocated to other neighborhoods. Um, and ultimately, what's being offered, even in the case of Admiral Court and Dorset Court, are units in other neighborhoods, which in many cases are actually inadequate to the family's needs anyway. Exactly. So we're not finding the same rents. We're not finding the same units. And we're not even able to maintain folks in the neighborhoods where their children go to schools, where they work, where they have the availability of social networks. So we're really just moving people out of the neighborhood altogether, not only hiking up the so how do we deal with that? What are, what are some solutions? So if you're concerned about increasing rents, you should buy. Not everybody's able to buy. But the only way to preserve a long-term fixed rate is through a 30-year mortgage. That's just the reality of it. And the displacement from neighborhoods is a definite real truth. The other side of it is that as people are buying in these neighborhoods, they're just trying to make a return. I might have rented a property for $700 but there might have also been people shooting outside or, you know, crime, safety issues, lack of amenities. But as the amenities approve, as more investment comes, as the crime goes down, the price may not adjust year by year. But when somebody transfers the property, they're going to jack it up. 
that new person's buying at a different price, and so they're going to pass it on. And this is a hard balance because I know there's the just cause bill that's floating around to at least prevent these types of of forcible evictions to at least you know give people time. And could you talk about the Just Cause bill? Yeah, so the Just Cause eviction bill, I think, is a really, really important measure. And it's certainly something the folks at CLS are in great support of. The Just Cause eviction bill requires that folks are evicted or leases are changed only for what we call good cause. And good cause includes um, non-payment of rent, property destruction, or some kind of breach of the lease. All it requires is that folks have a 30 to 60 day notice um, of the eviction or of the substantial change to the lease. So we're not talking about rent control, right? We don't want to be New York. You'll, you'll hear Councilman Jones say this when he talks about this bill, which he's really been championing. Um, but we do want folks to just have a little more time to have the ability to adjust to these changes and to do what they need to do for their families. So, you know, it's not a perfect solution, but I think it does equal the playing field for folks a little bit. But from what you said, it sounds like a good enough solution because if the players, the investors know that that's a part of the fabric, they could just build that in and say, okay, well, we know we're going to discount for this certain number of months, you know, when we acquire and, and do it that way. Cause you know, you know that you have to give at least 60 days with more time. I mean, you guys, you were given 21 days to get out at this point. You still going to have to move at some point, but you're, but more time helps. Yeah, more time at least this could be over and then I can start, look, I can start find a place where I can find a better school district if I cannot afford where I'm at right now. But 21 days, I mean, where am I going to put my three kids? And unfortunately, single moms are impacted most by yep. this. Women of color, mm. both of which you are, uh, Gamby. And so we're, we're dealing with something where we're seeing a lot of people getting pushed around. And I think it's Unfortunately, it seems like it's getting worse and worse as we go. But because this is Flashpoint, the final question is, um, in 15 seconds or less, what would you like to see happen to help tenants, but also leave landlords a space and flexibility and freedom of ownership as we try to tackle this eviction crisis? I would like to everybody, the landlord, the tenant, be fair. It's okay. It's their building. They want to sell it. It's fine. But I just follow the contract. The lease say you have to give us 60 days notice if you want us to move your property. We just need the fair time and why happening. Having a minimum amount of time for a move is not really prohibitive. Seems fair as long as, you know, the building is not a threat to the tenants inside of it. The Just Cause Eviction Bill, I think, is a, is a great idea. I think it serves all parties in these cases. Obviously, direct services is my heart. I think people should have greater access to representation in their eviction proceedings so that they do understand their rights. And I think we should be offering greater incentives to develop public housing and affordable housing options just so that there are more units that are actually within reach for folks. To Algernon Allen, to Barrett Marshall, and to Fatima Tagambi, thank you for coming into the KYW studios and talking about this issue in the news. Thank you. Thank you so much. Next up, she's preserving the dignity of those living and dying with addiction. Nobody wants to be homeless. Nobody wants to be addicted. People just feel powerless. Two ways a Kensington nurse is impacting the lives of the forgotten. 
This is Flashpoint, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg, and the opioid epidemic and overdosing deaths get Philadelphia residents hot under the collar. Last year alone, more than 1,200 people, that's 1,200 plus people, died of overdoses in the city of Philadelphia. In comes Mary Beth Appel. She's a nurse practitioner at the Catholic Worker Free Clinic in Kensington. She recently made headlines for her heartfelt, heart-wrenching labor of love love to remember those lost to this epidemic. And while she doesn't do the work alone, her impact is definitely felt. Mary Beth, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you for having me, Cherry. Please explain the problem as you saw it and how your work helps to solve the issue. People come into our free clinic, both for medical services and for the shower and toiletries. And each person that is affected by addiction, we try to talk to them about options for recovery and medication-assisted therapy or NA or AA or detox and try to hook people up and make that connection. And sometimes over time, one of the things we do well, I believe, is that we make relationships with people and some people we've known for years and over time as people are in a space where they're interested and ready for recovery, they might come back and that this might be part of the impetus to kind of help them on this way. Our, our goal is mainly to kind of improve people's, give people a little dignity and feel like human beings because as you know, the encampments for many of the people who are addicted live are subhuman conditions. Yeah. And a very, very difficult place. Sadly, we also see overdoses and we have had the occasion of reviving people who've overdosed on the street in front of our health clinic. We're on the same block as the St. Francis Inn Soup Kitchen, and there have been several overdoses there. I work with a team of volunteers, and we've all been trained to use Narcan and for CPR. Yeah. So sometimes we're called upon to revive someone. Other times people disappear and or we hear that they've died. So we're often called upon to find family or to try to help identify someone. We are connected with a community of people who often know these folks who have died and we do what we can to be supportive of them. And we're planning a memorial service this weekend to remember many people who've died over the years. This is somebody's daughter, somebody's son, somebody's father, possibly husband, and literally they could be found dead anywhere. That's correct. People are looking for these folks. Do they call? They don't know where to go. It's very common that a family member will come around with a missing persons flyer that they've made up and ask if we can be on the lookout for people. And so a lot of times, I mean, they may or may not have family that you're being able to locate, but you also try to make sure that they are remembered. And how do you do that? Well, the the local folks from the neighborhood who are guests at the soup kitchen and patients at the clinic often will make a small little memorial with a candle or balloons or stuffed animals and photos to remember people. And if we can, we would try to be part, attend people's funerals if that's an option. We've helped occasionally with kind of organizing or paying for a part of a person's funeral. And the guests at at the clinic and soup kitchen came to us recently and asked if we would consider doing a service to remember people and to have a place where people could gather So we're going to have a a procession from our clinic to a local community garden where I live near Lehigh Avenue. And um, it's about a 10-minute walk. And we've made, um, we have wooden crosses with people's names on them. So the people we're choosing to remember and name are folks who've, who've died over the years from illness, from addiction, from 
the consequences of poverty. It's it's a mix. And then we're going to put these crosses in the ground at a community garden as a spot for people to come together and to pray and to remember their their friends, their family, their loved ones. Why is it important to remember these individuals? Well, everyone is a human being and everyone needs to be remembered. And it's very sad because at times if people either don't have a family or the family doesn't have the financial means, people often end up kind of long-term at the coroner's office and are never given a proper funeral. The other thing is that people are a community and are a family, these folks who live and kind of spend time together and they don't really have a space to grieve or a time to really to be present and to kind of go through the grieving process. Occasionally, people might have an out-of-town family and there might be a funeral that our, our guests and patients aren't able to attend. So they feel, they just feel sad, kind of one way or the other, either if there's no funeral or if they're unable to attend the funeral. And there's no closure because you, exactly. in a lot of ways, this person just disappeared from your life and you have not seen them since. And in a way, I would think, provides a level of closure with dignity for both the family and the person who was lost. That's our hope. And so what do you think one of the biggest misconceptions are? Because people are dying literally of overdoses. This is an epidemic affecting everybody. People kind of, when you talk about addiction, folks have stigma. I would want people to understand and realize that people are people and people have moms and dads and siblings and friends and stories and lives. And I would like People to remember, they say it's important to remember the person for more than just their worst moment. So this time of life where people are deep into an addiction, if they end up in Kensington, it usually means they've burned all their bridges and ended up in a very desperate situation. Nobody wants to be homeless. Nobody wants to be addicted. People just feel powerless. Addiction is a disease, and people are powerless over the addiction and need and want support. and to get help for an addiction. There are many groups working together to try to help people get help. However, because of red tape and bureaucracy, people need IDs. Often people need medical assistance. People need to be connected in. And as fentanyl addiction has increased, Mm -hmm. people are using more and more often because people are sick. The higher the not being sick piece of of using heroin or fentanyl. The fentanyl lasts a very short time, so people are kind of spending all their time and energy on getting the next dose of fentanyl so people don't even have a chance to think straight. Yeah, because their head never is clear because it's so painful to come down. So where does your compassion come from? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I feel that I have a lot of faith in God and belief in humanity, and I believe that we're all children of God, so I would have compassion on all people. I mean, you look like a really nice lady. And so it's hard to even imagine you in the in the middle of a place that is literally stricken with a high level of opioid addiction and things like that. And yet you do it. Well, I've been doing this for a long time, uh, long before this epidemic of opioids. But I feel that it's just something that I love. And we have a very beautiful community of people, volunteers who work at the clinic, and we have a lot of fun. We have a lot of laughs and good times with our patients. We've gotten to know many people over the years, their family, their friends, and it's a very upbeat, positive atmosphere. And the people who come into the clinic, I hope, hopefully feel that it's a real positive time in their day as well. And so how do you feel when after, you know, on one side, there's the death that happens. But on the other side, there's recovery. 
how do you feel when your continued sustained effort actually works and someone is able to work to heal themselves of this addiction? Oh, that's just a wonderful feeling. Just this week, I ran into two different people, one on a bus and one on the subway to come up to tell me how well they were doing. They had an apartment. They had a job. One guy said he was sober five months. People come to us and want us to know when they're doing well. And that's just a great joy. Sometimes I don't even recognize people because they have become totally transformed. Yeah, that's amazing. And so how can people support you all? People have lost loved ones. People know loved ones. And they can't, they can't physically do anything. But maybe they feel like if they help you, they can help you help others. Well, we certainly appreciate prayers and, of course, donations because we have a small pharmacy on site. We give out toiletries. We have to keep the lights and the heat on. So we do appreciate donations. And and um, I think just asking people to see everyone they meet as a human being is just would be a really way to a really good way to help. So how can people reach you and find out more about the work that the Catholic Worker Free Clinic does in Kensington? My co-founder partner is Johanna Berrigan. Our number is 215-426-0364. Congratulations to you, Mary Beth. I know this is a continual long-term effort that you all are engaged in. Thank you too, Cherry. It's been my pleasure. Next up, they use out-of-school time to teach the skills that pay the bills. Regardless of zip code, you have the ability to learn. A Philadelphia nonprofit and the way it's making education work for the underserved. This is Flashpoint, and I'm Cherry Gregg. We here at KYW are all about community. And this week, it's all about building the future. And that's the labor of love taken on by Education Works. It's a nonprofit that helps 12,000 young people every year build the skills that pay the bills. With me in the studio to discuss their ongoing effort is Education Works CEO and President Miles Wilson. Miles, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you for having me. So for those folks out there who've never heard about Education Works, explain what it is you do. So Education Works is a nonprofit organization, and we provide in-school and out-of-school time supports for schools in Philadelphia and Camden, New Jersey. Uh, we serve students from kindergarten all the way up to 12th grade. We also have a workforce program in partnership with the city of Philadelphia called Power Corps PHL that gets opportunity youth 18 to 26 on a career path. Uh, far too often, the young people that we serve, kindergarten to 26, they are uh, not given a fair shot at a career path or, frankly, a full education experience. So what we believe in is regardless of zip code, regardless of where you grew up from, you have the opportunity, the ability really the ability to learn and be incredible at whatever you decide to do. Taking a really close look at the education um, environment today and creating programs that respond to the current need. With that said, we have a hyper focus on STEAM, uh, science, technology, engineering, the arts, and mathematics. Yeah. And so that is the future, basically. Those are the those are the the skills. That's the now. Those are skills (laughs) that pay the bills for now. One of the things that I found to be interesting is that your organization has helped to design a new take on recess? Every time inside of a school mm. is good time. What do you do at that time? Is a productive time. So we're, we're creating a structure where young people can actually have fun, but also have a structured environment where it actually connects with something that they were learning during the school time. So the back half of the day is just as productive as the first half. Also, in-school suspension 
You use that time well, as well? Well, we don't even call it in-school suspension anymore. So when I came on, one of the things that we are opposed to is this idea of in-school suspension. And then we created something called restorative action mm. centers. Those restorative action centers actually allow young people who are out of sorts to unpack what it is that took place or even find an individual or an adult that can help them with a problem that may have occurred either in school, in community, or in the home. Uh, and it's all about building agency. So when those uh, traumatic events were to happen again, because they had this exchange with an adult, a caring adult, they will be able to better deal with that event when it comes. So what do you think the biggest misconception is of young people, and especially young people that may make mistakes in sure, school? Sure. So one, if you're black, Latino, or have limited resources, the conversation is never about resources. It's always about how do we respond to this negative acting out? It's never about how do we engage a young person to talk. In urban settings, unfortunately, because there are limited resources, you don't have enough people, enough counselors, enough resources to pull that out, and it's a short fuse. So what you get as a response is suspension, expulsion, get out of my school versus how do I work with you? If you go out to a private school, those kids aren't getting suspended or expelled for a lot of different reasons. People are taking the time to engage them in a conversation and then supplying them with good information to get them back inside the classroom. Yeah, and so what makes Education Works work? It's a lot different than uh, some organizations that just view it as like out-of-school time as a safe place for kids to be yeah. and just make sure they don't hurt themselves. Uh, we, we take exception to that conversation. That bar needs to be raised. If you talk about kids, again, that go to super resource schools, that go to private schools, from three to six, they're actually getting things like entrepreneurialism, coding, and different um, programming that makes them a more well-rounded person. You advance this conversation some 10 years, and that 10-year-old or that 11-year-old who is now 21 looking for a job or a career, who's more prepared? The kid that got the safe out-of-school time or the kid that got the enrichment programming at the end of the day? That's the game changer. You are the person that could actually say or do something that could have that kid sort of light up and say, yeah. this is what I want to do. This is what I want to be. And we tell our staff all the time, you may not see the end result or you may see the end result years later when some young kid is getting interviewed and they say, you know, I am the president of the United States or I am an astronaut because of an out of school time program, program I received from Education Works. You yeah. don't know. And that happens. And so I know you have some stuff coming up. Yes. That's fundraising to help keep Absolutely. Education Works going. So it's Education Works sec second annual Empower Benefit. May 23rd is from 6 to 9 p.m. It will be at the Center for Architecture and Design at 1218 Art Street. We will actually be honoring Reverend Dr. Lorena Marshall Blake, president of the Independence Blue Cross Foundation. She's been a big supporter of Education Works. We'll have good music. We'll have good food. Yeah. Uh, good company. And you'll get a chance to meet young people. Um, and we want the young people to talk more than we do. Wonderful. And so that is on May 23rd. I also understand that there's June 16th, something in June as well. Our Trek Walk for PowerCore PHL. Stay connected with us on that. We'll actually have some updated information as it relates to that. And we'll push the, all this information out through our virtual platforms. So we're at educationworks.com. We're also at educationworks on LinkedIn. Uh, on Twitter, on Instagram, and we have a YouTube station. So Absolutely amazing. So I just want to say thank you, Miles, for coming in to Flashpoint and to talking about Education Works. And keep on making Education Works work. That's it for the Flashpoint Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this exclusive content. Follow KYW News Radio on Twitter and let us know what you think by using the hashtag Flashpoint. 
You can also follow me at Cherry Gregg. You can subscribe to the show by using the radio.com app, iTunes, or logging on to kwnewsradio.com. If there's an issue that makes you hot under the collar, let us know and we'll walk you through the flames. As Margaret Thatcher once said, you may have to fight a battle more than once to win it. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening.